What's up, John? Hey, Evan. What's going on? Raul. Hey, guys. We're going to start in about uh, seven minutes or so. Just trying to get the room set up. Uh, let's see. Let's see what we're talking about here. Just trying to get the room set up. If you guys want to pop up on stage and say hi or chat with me while we, uh, well, just before we get started, feel free to raise your hand. I'll bring you up. Just trying to get the room set up. What's a row? Should have an interesting discussion this evening with Tom. We can uh, hope everybody's doing all right. It's the middle of the week. Middle of the week. Hey, somebody's on stage with me. I can't see who it is just yet because I'm not in the app, but who is that? I know who that is. Oh, it sounds like Russell. Hey, Tomas. Hey, how's it going? Oh, you know me, living the dream. When I click on your face or your... Whatever your your yeah, I guess your face. It pops open a little thing now. It says, "Okay, wave at Russell. Wave at Russell to get the conversation started." Okay, I'm waving at you right um, now. So there we go. I don't know what that does. If that will pull us into a different room or not. Interesting. Hey, Tom, how's it going? Hello, hello. Thanks for the invite. Yeah, no, no problem at all. We'll get started in about five minutes or so, Tom. Okay. Just trying to get the uh, trying to get the room set up. Trying to get uh, some links here so that people know. I mean, I know people know who you are, but for the, just in case, on the off chance somebody's new to cybersecurity and doesn't know who Tom Vernon is, they can click on your face. Where do I send the twenty dollars? <laughs> Somebody wants to pop up on stage and chat with us for a little bit. Who is this? Uh, who is this? Oh no, they left. Okay, I don't know who they are. Um, so how's it going? Going well, man. I uh, actually thought I may have run into you uh, last night. We were over at the uh, United Way with the uh, the Giants and the Jets guys, and I was hoping to see you uh, pop in. Oh wow! Yeah, no, I didn't. I I don't even think I knew about that event, but that's uh, that's awesome. You know that they they do that the Grid Island uh, Gridiron Gala every year. Um, yeah, so it's all about um, you know activities that are sort of helping the uh, underprivileged. But uh, United Way does a great job, and uh, it was cool hanging out with like uh, George Fant and and and, and Travis Tarani last night, and uh, you know hearing these guys talk about what's going on in the uh, in their careers. That is awesome. No, that, that is awesome. Glad uh, glad you were able to do that. Yeah, no, I, I would have probably liked to uh, have been able to make that. Um, but we've got we've got a big event coming up next week for those uh, who are fanatics or who are fans. There's a big event <laughs> happening next week in uh, Las Vegas. Should be fun. Yeah. All the hackers stay away, but all the fans, please attend and please tune in. Um. Okay, it is, uh, it is about three minutes before we get started. So why don't, why don't I just start uh, setting the stage? Uh, the rest of the moderators will get will join us, I'm sure. Uh, we've got the back channel going. Uh, if you're new to our, our weekly fireside chat, we do this every Wednesday. Uh, we run from about 8 p.m. Eastern time until about 9.30 p.m. Eastern time or so. 
Um, we usually ask our guests questions for about 30 to 45 minutes, and then we'll open up for the audience to raise your hand and we can bring you up on stage and you can ask a, a question of, of our guests. This week, we're joined by Tom Brennan, and I'll let Tom sort of introduce himself in a, in a minute um, in case there are anybody, there is anybody in the room who doesn't know who Tom is. Um, you'll be, uh, well, I don't want to spoil it, but we're in for a treat this evening. I can just tell you that much. Um, uh, just very quick ground, ground rules. Uh, let's have fun. Let's have a good evening. Let's have a good time this evening, I should say. Uh, this is the middle of the week. This is our, I'll call it our stress reliever, our, our time to relax and really just have a conversation, have a conversation and get to know our guests a little bit more on a, on a different level, a uh, different level along the lines of getting to know them and, and their journey. Uh, so if you are a vendor in the audience or even on stage, which we do have uh folks do, who do provide services. Uh, but if you are in the audience and you do want to pop up on stage and sell us on your product, we ask that you don't do that today. Uh, we ask that you keep this as a conversation really focused on, you know, learning about the, our guests, learning about, uh, you know, things that could help you um, continue to further grow in your career or even sell to, to folks uh, that are on the stage. So use that type of an and it applies for well, maybe about maybe just me, um, but our comments and opinions are our own and do not represent our prior or present employer. So we ask that you keep that in mind and be respectful of that. Um, and then the last thing I'll say, if you are new to our fireside chat, again, we do this every Wednesday, uh, but if you are relatively new, there's a little greenhouse on the top left of your screen, right next to it says fireside chat. You can click that little greenhouse and join the fireside chat club. Uh, you will be able to see who our upcoming guests are, and you'll be able to listen to the playback for uh, our prior, prior sessions. Um, so thank you for tuning in, and thank you for uh, taking the time out of your day to spend with us this evening. So it is almost on time. I'm almost on time. Hey, Lisa Beth, just a quick microphone check for you. Hey, hey, how are you doing this evening? Doing all right, doing all right. Katie, microphone check for you. Hi, good evening. There she is. Can you hear, can you hear me now? Okay, good. I hear you loud and clear. And Russell, we've heard you. So I'm just going to go around the room, Tom. We'll leave you for last. Uh, but I'm Tomas Maldonado. I'm the Chief Information Security Officer at the National Football League. Russell, over to you. Thank you, Tomas. And as Tom, Tomas said earlier, if you don't have this on your calendar as a recurring reminder to, to be here for Fireside Chat, you're missing out. Russell Eubanks, former CISO and CIO for the Atlanta Fed, last couple of years been running my company, Security Ever After, and helping folks get their start and get promoted in cyber. Katie, over to you. Hello, good evening. I'm Katie Hanahan. I am a VCSO and um, also run a cybersecurity program for AMSP, uh, local um, to Chicago. Um, over to you, Lisa. Beth, Lisa Beth. I always do that. I'm so sorry. Lisa Beth. Like <laughs> no that. worries. Sorry. Um, I'm Lisa Beth Lentini Walker. I am the CEO and founder of Lumen Worldwide Endeavors, which is a compliance, ethics, and corporate governance consulting firm. I also teach law school in the United States and in Europe, and I'm an author. And I am just so excited to get to spend the evening with Tom and all of the people on the call tonight. That is awesome. Thanks, Lisa Beth. Thanks, Katie. Thanks, Russell. Thanks for coming and joining us. Look, this this guest of ours, uh, again, if you never cross paths with Tom, um, 
you know, shame on you because you should get out more. No, I'm just playing. Look, if you haven't crossed paths with Tom, you're in for a treat. Uh, I had the pleasure of meeting Tom. I want to say, Tom, during your OWAS days, I, I think that's probably the the, the prominent time period uh, in my life during my career as I was sort of uh, uh, working at Goldman Sachs around that time period. Uh, and, and I think I, you and I sort of crossed paths back then, but you've done a lot more before that and you've done a lot more after that. So I want to give you the opportunity to sort of introduce yourself. And then while you're introducing yourself or while you get, pa while you get past your, your sort of bulk introduction, you know, I usually like to ask our, our guests about their origin story. So why don't we... Why don't you tell us a little bit more about you? Uh, tell us about your origin story. And first and foremost, I do believe, if I'm not mistaken, I should say thank you for your service because I think you were in the military. Was it the uh, Marines? Yes. So, uh, well, thanks for having me. I really uh, appreciate the invite, and I'm honored to uh, be invited. I've uh, listened to your uh, some of your other uh, events, and I've uh, was always impressed with the guests. So, uh, being asked to uh, be a part of that's uh you know definitely a uh, a good thing um so you know i'm just a, an irish kid from long island right like that's kind of where i grew up kind of the space i came from sort of a sort of a lower middle class sort of uh space uh and uh today i'm you know doing a lot in technology and, and kind of have a couple things to maybe share um but you know if we go backwards uh in time we have to go forward a little bit right and you can never go back um what's important i think today uh, is that, you know, I serve the community today as the executive director of, of a global nonprofit. Uh, it's an accreditation certification body known as CREST. Uh, and CREST provides recognized accreditations for organizations, particularly that are focused on national critical infrastructure. Um, so, you know, we have a, a focus around penetration testing, incident response services, threat intelligence, and security operations centers. But really what that means is we accredit the businesses that provide those services to help organizations rapidly work with those qualified organizations. And, and certainly uh, uh, what started in 2004 as an effort led by GCHQ, um, Crest you know, got off the ground in the United Kingdom, quickly expanded around the world. And pretty much uh, since 2017, uh, I've been uh, the executive chair uh, and leading that charge here in the United States. So working from, you know, a, a bunch of different perspectives from the DOD side to large infrastructure to national critical infrastructure, et cetera, uh, on, on demonstrating some of the value there. Um, like many of us, uh, I wear a couple different hats. Um, and my other hat that I wear that I actually have the pleasure of being the chief information officer for Mandelbaum Barrett. Uh, it's one of the largest law firms in New Jersey, uh, growing nationwide, uh, and I provide a lot of consultation and technical guidance to the clients as well as the attorneys uh, that are associated with the law firm, um, really focused on you know business and due process and due care. So a lot of the things I've been doing over the years, uh, as you mentioned, some of the OWASP stuff, um, you know, that all plays into the conversation because I think many of us spend a lot of time in the industry and, you know, we give back a lot and we try our best to, um, suggest, uh, ways forward and then collaborate with, with peers and others to sort of, uh, help sort of evolve the industry. So I've been doing that for a number of years. Um, but again, the origin story is pretty simple. Uh, I think, uh, I was one of those guys, uh, you know, back in the day that, you know, grandpa came home with a, a broken televideo CPM uh, machine. In this case, it was an 802H and says, hey, I uh, got this for you. I don't know what you can do with it. It doesn't work, but I thought you might like it at like 10 years old. 
Uh, and then figuring it out and ripping it apart, I was the guy that would always take apart stuff and figure out how to work and pull chips just for fun and understand how how items actually correspondingly worked to make things work. Then after getting a second Televideo 802H and figuring out how I can swap parts out, eventually had a working machine and was able to play Colossal Cave and learn all about, uh, you know, X, Y, Z, Z, Y and how that process would, you know, zoom me to different parts of the game. Uh, so passionate, like most of us came from a technology background uh, and, and had fun. And, you know, the era I think of where I came from is, you know, in the eighties, right? So what did everybody go do in 83 that has a, a tech affiliation? Um, like myself, we went with a bunch of friends and went and saw war games and, uh, you know, sat down and watched that, walked out and sort of joked with my friends and go, wow, that's kind of a interesting. It was kind of a fun thing that some of us were already sort of participating in, uh, and, you know, tying it back to getting jobs at local computer stores and running bulletin board services on Long Island and associating with our 2600 local groups, which of course is based out of middle Island, Long Island. So a very good synergy to that community, you know, at its core, um, being able to, uh, you know, sit down and understand back in the day, how Pascal worked and how the process would go for automation of workflows and really having hands-on ability to take technical equipment apart and put it back together and understanding the basics and fundamentals. I think that was core. Um, like many of us, uh, you know, coming up through that age, you know, high school was a fun time, uh, but some of us got distracted. Uh, I was one of those distracted young youths that focused on probably areas I shouldn't have and uh, really spent a lot of time learning about how things worked in, in interesting ways. Um, at the time, uh, I was suggested strongly uh, that I, I might want to uh, choose a different path. And uh, uh, I luckily chose the United States Marine Corps as a way to sort of get out of Dodge, if you will. Uh, and when I sort of landed on those yellow footprints and, and sort of walked through that experience, um, there was an ethics change. I think there was a, a monumental change of purpose and being and, and mission and trying to align, you know, th that mischievous kid that was growing up in, you know, Long Island uh, to a kind of a different thing. Uh, and, you know, that sort of was a, a very big milestone, I think, in my life of of sort of changing and applying some of the, the skill set uh, that I had grown to love about being very inquisitive and challenging authority and not accepting the, the status quo. Um, and then putting it into a different set of shoes. Um, unlike some of these days that would join, you know, the Air Force or the, the Navy or even now the Space Force uh, and look forward to, you know, technology. You know, I raised my hand and signed up to be a grunt and wanted to be infantry. You know, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to follow in, you know, dad's footsteps and, and you know, do that fantasy legacy thing. And it was interesting and, and learning about that uh, was, you know, sort of another passion. Um, having a career and doing uh, some stuff in the military always was eye-opening as to, you know, how things worked and, and, and how large logistical problems could be solved if people actually took the time to plan things out a little bit. And as they say, you know, you plan out 80% and once the bullets start flying or things go crazy, you, know, you figure the rest out along the way. So being able to adapt, overcome with integrity, with a team, and understanding sort of what that is, again, put core functions, I think, into what I am today, uh, being able to, you know, sort of grow in that area. So that's sort of, you know, begins the process, right? You, you take technical skill, you get mentored, you learn about the way things perhaps should work, and uh, you're off uh, and, and quickly 
going from there into um, experiences that are, you know, sometimes scarring for life. Uh, and in my case, I was, uh, you know, I got hurt. I broke my back uh, and I uh, got out of the Marine Corps in 91. And I, uh, after a long time, I came home and I thought about what I was going to do and how I was going to do it and what skills I really had to transition. And, you know, how does a vet come back to civilian life in that respect and understand, well, what job skills do I actually have now being a quote unquote, a disabled vet and, uh, you know, walking with a limp and having, you know, problems with my back and that sort of a thing. Right. So you go back to what, you know, and you take the opportunity to then combine those talents. You take the technical aspects and you apply it. In my case, I was picked up by a private investigator, uh, who wanted me to assist him with some, some work he was doing. And, uh, it was kind of cool because it allowed me to sit behind a desk a little bit and, and work closely with the technical aspects that he needed to understand to tie that to the physical side of identification and processing and investigations and hunting down people that were causing disruption in crime. So now you had somebody that, you know, was kind of weaponized, right? I had a technical background. I now had a physical background and I was in a weird state. So learning from investigators, incident responders, people that were doing this sort of work was, was really, really important, uh, because it's again, fundamentally helped, uh, what, what I wanted to, you know, kind of aspire to do, which was, um, you know, stay active in that space. But again, I had to sort of adapt and overcome. And then it changed quickly because I was asked to build a database or build a system that we could track certain things. And there we go, you know, talk about Fox Pro and, and putting a, a database together and demonstrating how we can quickly build some tools to help the business piece. And it went very much back to the roots of building technology and building software and then trying to make it usable in a business functional space. Uh, and, you know, that again, very foundational, right? So you start to see where um, things may line up because you come out of that world uh, and you're, and you get involved in other technical areas. Um, some of the folks that were part of, uh, I guess, asking me to be part of this, I, I had worked with in a past life at a, a Long Island company known as uh, Paul Corporation. And I went there. Um, I was kind of recruited there because they wanted some other assistance. And one of the first things I did at Paul Corporation was, again, went back to the technical side and moved away from a little bit of the investigation stuff, but spent time helping them using Lotus Notes of all things, build a public facing system that their clients could do lookups for filtration and be able to processing orders and being able to conduct that. And that was, you know, a long time ago, you know, that was in, you know, 94, 95, you know, it was the early days of, uh, the explosiveness that, that, that happened. So, you know, pre, um, uh, you know, in that time, uh, being able to quickly, again, adapt and use that technical sense and, and to kind of then open up a can of worms because everything I then started to touch became lead, follow, get out of the way, meaning lead a team, help build out an, an effort, help the business on its mission, uh, and then, you know, sort of push the distractions out of the way to accomplish the goal and be able to, you know, do a sit rep report and feed that back to the business and, you know, let people sort of have that, that closed loop as to how these things work. Um, then I had an opportunity to, to move to New Jersey and, uh, uh, I joined ADP. And uh, came to New Jersey for the first time. Um, it was very interesting uh, space even being from Long Island. Jersey was a whole different world, believe it or not. It's a quite a ride from where I grew up in Long Island. Um, 
but landing out here, you know, looking at another organization and understanding what the mission was, uh, a gentleman named by the name of Russ Freyden, uh, who was a senior gentleman at uh, ADP, old Navy guy. We had a very, we had a very clear discussion what he needed and how he needed to get it, get it done. And I was here to help him in a group called major accounts. And again, building out technology, um, being able to access the data center and work in an environment that was um, very useful and very dynamic. Uh, and again, always having that conversation of build a system that can be resilient, build a system that has integrity, checks and reviews, be able to sort of drive these messages through. So again, constantly being involved in that space um, was useful, but then there was not a lot of guidance. Because in the 90s, late 90s, there really wasn't a good resource of material out there. And, you know, you started seeing some chatter for some East Coast guys and some West Coast guys and people collaborating. And again, remember what I said earlier, I used to run a bunch of bulletin boards and was always in the collaborative sort of space and reaching out to people and that sort of thing. But organizations like WASC and OWASP and others started to materialize. Uh, these were, again, nothing more than people collaborating and putting together a place for resources. And I found it extremely interesting because trying to find data around new areas and innovation really wasn't available. Um, so you you had to look to the people um, that were doing the work uh, and that were willing to share uh, in your communities, in your small circles, because there really wasn't great guidance there, right? There really wasn't great, even books and materials, quite frankly, in some cases. So trying to be innovative and being on the cutting edge starts with, you know, how do I scale? How do I build systems? How do we make this happen? And again, learning that and being involved in lots of uh, great efforts, uh, again, recruited out of ADP. Uh, I was asked to be a participant in a young startup company known as Daytech Online. And some of you may know that as a financial services company that you may have traded stocks with because we were the first uh, on Wall Street to kick in the doors of Wall Street and do online transactional trading. And running that organization's infrastructure, I ran the inside part of the business, uh, the front-end transactional piece was run by another gentleman. Uh, but at the end of the day, the the effort around the teamwork that it took to sort of change Wall Street was amazing. Uh, and working with a young, passionate group of people that would think nothing of running you know, 20 hour days, sleeping in the data center in downtown Manhattan, uh, and just getting the job done because it was fun and it was exciting. And yeah, there was money there, but that was a plus. We would have done it anyway in some cases, right? Um, just getting those exposures. So there's a lot of backstory that then starts to spawn from that space. Because Daytech, as many of you know, had a, had a good short run. Organization was you know then acquired. Uh, and many of us moved on. Um, I moved on as well. And one of the things I did after taking some time off and enjoying myself was starting a little consultancy and building some software and selling some widgets and writing some open source stuff and getting involved in a couple different organizations like InfraGuard and OWASP and, and others more formally, and then taking more of a volunteer leadership role because I had the time, I had the flexibility, um, and at that point I had the funding to be able to spend a lot of time working with these organizations to sort of make things better and why because I found a lot of peers uh, that were not only local, but global, that you know were very communicative. Uh, we were very much in the same boat. People were trying to learn things. People were trying to collaborate and share and, and build a good community. And you, know, you start to meet some of the people in, in multiple different circles. Uh, and you start to realize, I think, that you know there's a lot of common ground, 
right? A lot of common ground. You find folks that, you know, uh, may have had a similar background and, you know, may have, you know, turned to a different model uh, or have simply just tried to make the best they can uh, in, you know, in the world. Um, picking pet projects was always fun for me uh, and still is. Um, I like to pick really interesting things to focus on and they may not be financially um, rewarding, but they're sometimes nothing more than um, personally rewarding. And I think those are the most important. Um, I have a child with special needs, so I always look for opportunities to contribute back to those communities. And one of the ones I thought was always interesting was like exoskeletons, uh, being able to help people with MS, you know, utilize robotics to go ahead and, you know, make the gates change so children can, you know, walk faster or be able to be assisted. Um, I think there's lots of cool underserved markets out there. Um, and that's, you know, where I like to spend some of my time. I mentioned before we started this call that even like last night we were at the United Way and had a chance to meet some of the the Jets and Giants guys that were there as part of, uh, you know, their giving back and just hearing stories and hearing the demonstration of gratitude and really what that means in the space is super important, um, at least for me. Um, again, there's lots of tech discussions. There's lots of penetration type discussions and certain response type discussions that I've been a part of. Some of them have been uh, uh, amazingly interesting to, to watch unfold. Uh, sometimes we get real lucky and we find evidence or information that leads us to uh, an individual that, you know, commits the crime and we're sort of unmasking who's behind the keyboard and that's becomes fun. Um, but at the same time, um, it's a, it's a technical hard space, right? We, we enjoy what we do and then helping, um, organizations or businesses or just people, uh, I think is really where I spent a lot of my time. So, so it's kind of a long opening, but that sort of primes the pump, I think, for some of the more recent things that I've, that I've worked on. Tomas. Wow. So much, so much there, Tom, so much there to unpack and, and thank you. So, so first of all, thank you for sharing. Uh, thank you for sharing all, all of that backstory. Um, it, it's good to see, it's good to hear, uh, all of the, activities that you've been involved in and you know you you're very much mission mission driven uh community oriented and, and giving back so so that's uh, um you know always a positive thing when you when you when you can spend time recognize where you came from and, and never lose sight of where you came from to to really help other folks as well which is which is always great um i'm going to pass i, I do i did see uh steven and david joined us uh, Stephen and David, I'll give you guys a, a, a little bit more time to sort of warm up and then you can do an intro, but I'll pass it over to, to, to Russell. If you've just joined us as our weekly fireside chat, I do see somebody with a little party hat. So uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, welcome to Clubhouse. Uh, that little party or celebration that means it's your first week. Uh, and if you did raise your hand, we'll, we'll I'll open up for questions in about uh, 15 or 20 minutes or so. So just hang tight for, for a little bit. You can put your question in the in the chat if you want to, if you don't want to jump up on stage. So Russell, over to you. Thanks, Tomas. And Tom, thanks for your service to our country uh, as a Marine. That's amazing. And as you were talking, uh, so many things came back to mind. I mean, watching war games, my first programming language back in high school was Pascal. And, and I looked in my email, Tom, and 2011 was my, I thought, how, how long ago did I start getting emails? And I still see someone about the uh, OWASP summit back in 2011. It's just, uh, it brought back just a flood of memories and uh, just an amazing career. Like what Tomas said just a moment ago, question for you. My first, first question for you is with your role now as CIO, 
how do you balance the you know, knowing and doing work in security and then thinking kind of with your CIO hat and then maybe talking with customers, like you said, how do you effectively kind of pivot from one role to another, given the responsibilities that you have, as well as the, the, the very awesome career you've had, uh, particularly in cyber? So I, I think I'd answer that like this. Um, the law firm of uh, Mandelbaum Barrett has been around for 90 years. Uh, and the CEO of the law firm is a gentleman named William Barrett, um, as his you know, name is part of the moniker, right? Uh, the other gentleman is uh, Barry Mandelbaum, um, who has been around for a long, you know, long number of years, and his dad was the predecessor. So, uh, you know, firm has been around for a long time. Um, about twenty years ago, uh, you know, I became friends with Bill, um, unrelated to law firm stuff, uh, and my wife and his wife were friendly, and we had a, you know, a sort of a relationship there that has sort of built over a friendship over twenty years. And there was an opportunity uh, when he reached out to me and said, hey, I'm really looking for someone to help guide us and to, you know, sort of be that guy. We, you know, we have a lot of issues and, you know, client issues and technical issues. And can you help us? Uh, and I said, well, yeah, I can certainly help you. You know, you want me to come in and have a cup of coffee and talk? No problem. Happy to, you know, mix business with, you know, friendship. No problem. But, you know, these are separate things. And he goes, no, no, no. I'm looking for you to join the team. So long story short, I looked at the opportunity and it really gave me a chance to, as I joke with Bill, say semi-retire um, because being able to work with a, a, a law firm that is, has a very complex environment, you know, they always represent 35,000 clients, et cetera. Um, but the point is it's a small firm. It's, you know, 200 people. So to me, that's a small business, right? So looking at what you can do with technology, looking at how you can spend money, looking at how you can do secure configuration, looking at how you can do process in a small firm, I don't care that I used to be able and, and work for, you know, organizations that have, you know, many, many, many thousands of people. Um, the, the applying that to a small business gives me the opportunity to spend less time, if you will, with the organization hands-on, more time coaching some of the attorneys on some of the critical matters that they're working on, litigations and, and breach issues and et cetera, on behalf of the client. So that becomes more of a, a conversational time that I'm enjoying that part of the business. Um, it doesn't kill me on the labor time to, to work on the day to day. And I have a great team, uh, a great team of guys, uh, and, and providers, uh, that are associated with the firm that, you know, I can help sort of lead. So we have a great team in a small environment. We do great things. And quite honestly, we've transformed that company over the last couple of years to be what it is today. And I, and I would hope that, uh, many of the, uh, the staff, uh, and, and the lawyers would agree that the place is in a much better position than it is, you know, was a couple of years ago. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question directly, but the time gives me more time these days for things I care about professionally, such as Crest, uh, such as still working on OWASP projects, such as still working on uh, activities with the Center for Internet Security, still working on work with CISA and DOD, still doing things that I enjoy to do. Um, and that's sort of, I almost call it extracurricular, right? Like I'm, I'm working in those capacities to assist and help uh, and I'm tying it back to some real world activities that I do on a day-to-day -day basis. Does that make sense? It does. I, I love that extracurricular, kind of that label for the extra things that you'd like to stay involved in. That, that's awesome. Thank you so much. Uh, Katie, over to you. Yeah, thank you. Hi, Tom. It's so good Hi. to see you. 
Um, we've, I think we've been in a number of rooms together over the, the last year or so. And um, I think you found your, the right place because you mentioned a few times and what I've noticed about you in the rooms that we've been in is you are just so open and you're so collaborative. Um, and it's something I've really appreciated about um, being a fly on the wall in some of the rooms that you've been in um, and being a moderator, I think, in some as well with you. Um, so you said something really at the beginning um, about, and thank you for your service, by the way, because I'm about to mention something you said you learned. Um, the adapt and overcome with integrity piece. I love um, that you mentioned that uh, at the very beginning of the conversation and it flowed very naturally into the rest of your journey and, and the things that you're doing every day in our industry. I'm really interested in understanding from you, particularly since you've been able to find so many ways to um, have an outlet for the skill set that you've developed over your career um, in both the Marine Corps and in, in the cybersecurity space. What advice do you have for folks, you know, like me who are now kind of mid-career, uh, looking for ways to give back to um, the, you know, to, to the, you know, society in general, but don't necessarily know what to do. Um, some, you know, for for me, I volunteer a little bit of time with a, a legal aid clinic where I can volunteer some cybersecurity, you know, services and stuff like that. But beyond that. I would love to know from you, um, since you're so in tune with that, you know, what are some other ways for those of us in the room to be able to give back to the broader community? So my opinion is that there's, if you like, if you, if you, if you are fond of higher education and you want to see the next generation come out of, you know, universities and, and, and higher education, then it's natural to assist with the schools in your area. Now, luckily I'm in, you know, I'm right outside New York City. So uh, I'm an advisor for New York University and NJIT and County College of Morris and St. John's. Like these are great people that are on these advisory teams. Many of them from industry, many of them have, you know, got the bumps and bruises to advise a university. And really what we're advising on is what? you know, the syllabus and trying to help make sure that it stays uh, relevant to what industry is looking for and where tech is going. Uh, and that sort of is, is useful. So giving back at that level is always cool. Um, in addition to that, there's even local trade schools. Um, in my area here in, in Denville, uh, New Jersey, there's a, a technical school that, you know, is geared for ninth through 12th. And it's, it's a, it's a, like a, a very unique, uh, organization or unique sort of a school. Uh, but again, helping that out at that level and even going there and speaking and, uh, a friend of mine and I went and we did a course on using Arduino board and, you know, showing kids how to do it and then turning the tables and having them work with us on different small sub projects. And all of a sudden now we're building drones and now everybody's having fun and it becomes more of an activity. And, you know, as a father, I look back to some of my kids and, um, uh, my, my, uh, my son, uh, I'll use Jack as the example, you know, my son's six foot eight, 265 pounds, kids, a football player is huge, but he has no tech interest. It just isn't his thing. And that's cool. Uh, because I understand the other side as well, but it's almost like you can help out in different areas and find commonality with, um, kids, uh, younger people that are looking to part, uh, partake or even peers that want to learn something. And to me, that's sort of the fun part. It's not, a, it's sort of fun to continue to be collaborative and, and not doing it because I get paid for it. Right. Like, it's like, Hey, I want to go do this thing. And I'm interested in hacking the CAN bus on my car. Why? Because I'm interested in understanding how it works. And then I'm going to reach out to key people in the industry and say, Hey, you know, is there, is there some tips and tricks I can learn here? And 
many of them will smirk and say, here, read this tech article, or here, read this thing I wrote five years ago that is still important today. So to back to your question, the universities are a great place to participate. Uh, many of them that are in the, like the NSA Center of Excellences do a lot of collegiate uh, type assessment work. So if you want to help them with their red team or help them with their blue team, that's fine. But more importantly, if you just want to help the some of the students that are there, it's always good to be a guest speaker from industry or to to give some of the, uh, you know, again, give some some things back um, in that respect. So um, in conclusion, the schools, I think, are, are, are core because it kind of also gives you a little of energy. I always like leaving those sessions because it's like, you know, 30 people that are there to learn something. And if you can contribute to the conversation, it's awesome. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, I actually read that about you earlier that you were on some advisory things with um, with uh, higher ed. Um, and you, you mentioned something before I, I pass it over to Lisa Beth, just one quick question, just because I'm curious. So when you go in and you're advising on a syllabus, what are the things that you're saying that maybe, you know, they're not really part of uh, the curriculum, and you're saying, you know, this is a is actually a little bit more pertinent now. Um, what should, you know, what do you think that if, if I were to go volunteer at uh, a local institution here, what are the things that you're suggesting that they add to their syllabus and the places that you're advising? Yeah. Um, so, so part of it, I think is, is taking your real world experiences that you see in your discipline. And you, know, you mentioned before, you know, some of the IR work or some of the uh, compliance work or audit work, things that are real. Uh, and be able to sit down with the university and say, let's let's talk about you know what your syllabus is here. And most of them are doing you know quarterly reviews and quarterly measurement, right? Because they're it's very much a lot of the schools are very well organized. So looking at the core uh, of their syllabus and and questioning it, quite frankly, and saying, why do you guys do this? Like, why are we still teaching this particular area? Um, and, and and that usually prompts a few people in the room to go, well, that's what we've always done. And the answer is, well, that, things change, right? We would agree that, you know, perhaps we might want to look at, you know, some some efforts that are going to help, uh, you know, students get jobs. And depending on what level of school it is and what type of program it is, it could be as simple as suggesting, hey, you guys should really be putting things like PowerShell into your core component for learning so that people are understanding that this is becoming a main uh, opportunity for people to do administration from. Or, hey, you know, are we talking about solidarity? Are there are, are people interested in writing code, but we you have nothing in your context that talks about, you know, the blockchain and how that operates and, and where you want students to go to? Or is it more of just a a basic introductory class and you really want to have sound fundamentals on ports and services and you want to make sure that people realize that there's you know issues that happen with clean you know plain text protocols so it depends on where we go but giving that experience i think is helpful and a lot of the universities are hungry for content and they want industry people to participate so if you can hyper connect and, and even bring some of your colleagues into the conversation and say hey i've, I've talked to several uh, you know, large organizations. I took an independent poll. These are the 10 questions I asked. Here's the result. It came back from, you know, 50 people. All of a sudden you start having a little bit of, um, uh, you know, uh, effort for the university and they're very appreciative of that. And it really helps them build out a program. Oh, I really appreciate that. Yeah, the the tactical guidance. So now I know that when Tomas comes into town to visit the Bears, that <laughs> he and I can go in together to a local uh, institution, maybe even a city of Chicago College, because I went two semesters, alma mater, whoop, whoop, city of Chicago <laughs> Colleges. Um, so it's good to know that Tomas is committed to that on this uh, this call. It's great. And with that, um, I saw, actually, Tomas, I saw you flash your mic. I assumed you wanted to do a quick room, room reset. Thanks, Tom, for that. I really appreciated that insight. Thanks.
Absolutely, Katie. When I when I head over to Chicago, I will definitely not let you know. No, I'm just playing. That would be <laughs> that would actually be interesting if I could, if we could carve that out uh, time wise and, and make that work. That would actually be interesting. I, I'd welcome that. Um, but go ahead, Lisa Beth. Why don't you uh, do a room reset and you can ask your question. Oh, I love a good room reset. So thank you everyone for joining us tonight. We are the Fireside Chat and tonight we're talking with Tom. Uh, if you haven't been here before, take a look up at the top of your screen. You'll see Fireside Chat in the little greenhouse. If you click on the greenhouse, you'll get more information about how you can follow and be part of the ongoing Fireside Chats and get visibility to all the people who um, make this a reality every single week. So, um, without further ado, a, Tom, I'm completely excited to hear about you as the wife of a retired, although I guess he never does retire, uh, Marine Corps gunnery sergeant. I know how much you've been through, and I just thank you for your service um, and everything that you've done. Um, one of the things that I wanted to ask you, though, is as you start thinking about core skills, that we need to start cultivating and making sure exist in the workforce of the future. What are you seeing? And is it different than when we all grew up? Yeah, um, thanks for the question. I, I, I think that it still comes down to passion. Um, I, I think that we can take technical areas that we believe are deficient and areas that we can't find resources for and train to what good looks like and train to um, models and reference architectures and guidance. I think that's not, not a big lift, but I think it's really much focused on trying to drive labor as to where you need labor to go. Um, if you're looking for innovation, that's a little bit, little bit different, right? So I'm always challenged with the problem that people say, oh, there's, there's not enough people in the security supply chain to, you know, get all the organizations that they need assistance with. And it becomes sort of a, a balance. It becomes a balance of um, maybe how the approach is taking place. I happen to believe that organizations should be, um, you know, working with qualified organizations if they're dealing with critical infrastructure. You know, the example that I use all the time becomes, um, you know, hey, if I had, God forbid, a, a severe medical problem, I wouldn't go to my neighbor's house to have them work on me in their in their garage, right? I would go to an accredited doctor that you know has met their qualifications, and I would hope he's you know good on you know a good doctor of uh, that particular ailment that I'm dealing with. So why is it any different in this new industry? And I say new industry of cyber, where that we are still looking for assistance from 15 year old kids to figure out why we can't print. Uh, at the end of the day, we should be looking, in my opinion, for accreditation in certain components. And when you look at critical services, um, it's important to not only accredit, in my opinion, the organizations that are doing the work, but also the people. Now, not just a paper cert on the wall, but being able to have competency in those particular skills. And that's where it gets interesting because, you know, there's lots of great organizations out there that um, uh, do, you know, training uh, and we encourage that. And then you have the deficiency of the, um, the, the problem of people's access to this training and the ability to say, well, is it a training business or are you giving training away to the masses? So if we look at some of the higher education organizations, back to that again, you know, you'll see some, you'll see a couple of college colleges that are giving their training away 
Uh, you'll see some great components, and it seems that everybody these days does a, a YouTube video on something. Um, so I think that if you're really hungry for the knowledge, you can find it. And that's the inquisitive issue we have with critical thinking, is trying to find things that people want to do. Um, I took a recent um, group of kids uh, and we were talking about technology and they all were asking about how to get involved. And I showed them how the bug bounty program works and I explained to them how they can get paid for doing their schooling and training. And several members of this group, about three months later, you know, started pulling down $500,000, $5,000 bounties after learning things like, you know, using Burp Proxy to look for issues within web applications. So teaching kids skills, but practically applying it to say, hey, you know, if you want to be, you know, if you think this hacker thing is a, is a cool title, okay, great, but let's talk about what you're really doing, right? You're doing quality assurance, you're doing application testing, you're doing bug finding, um, but then turn it into something interesting. The same way that I think that if somebody wanted to learn mechanics, I'd put them in a, a hot rod shop and show them how to, to build cool, fast cars. Like you got to, you know, teach to the person that is trying to um, acquire the skills. Does that make sense? It totally does. And, um, you know, I appreciate you providing your perspectives on this. I will turn it over to Steven. Thank you, Lisa. Uh, hey, Tom, uh, I think this hey. is the first time you and I are on a panel or anything like that together. So uh, I, I did join a little later. Uh, so just intros on my end. I'm Steven Garcia, the vice president of cybersecurity over at FanDuel. Um, first of all, thank you for your service. Thank you for your time. Uh, like my sensei likes to remind me, there's no such thing as an ex-Marine. So once a Marine, <laughs> always a Marine. Um, yeah, so look, I got like two questions, but I'll, I'll keep this down to, to, to one for now. And maybe if we got time later, we'll, we'll come around for the first one. Um, you know, like I, I'm super appreciative that people like you are, are, are really helping out with school and academia. Um, I, I, one of the questions I had for you is, um, what, what we've seen is that there's still, I, I, I consider it like a lack of overall executive understanding from the new class of folks coming in, right? And so when we do interviews for, for new talent, right, we'll say things like, um, like if it's a security engineer position or something, hey, you know, build up this defense for us, like paint us a picture of what, what, what defense would look like for any average network in the cloud or something. And the answers that we're looking for are generally the answers that we don't get. And when we do, it's like somebody, we're like, okay, here's the person that we need. And the answers that we're looking for is really don't just jump into the diagramming. It's, it's ask us things like, what's the budget I'm working with look like? Uh, how was that budget decided? You know, what's the value of the asset we're protecting? In other words, a, a, a more balanced risk understanding of why we're doing what we do. Um, how do you think we should, uh, as people in the field, be tackling that? Um, so some friends at MITRE, um, I'll use Bob Martin as the, the source, cause Bob would probably appreciate this, um, have always been very focused on helping people with reference architectures and speaking to the conversation of building a house, right? You and I both know if we go into the planning board or the zoning board of our local town, there needs to be stamped documents and engineered plans and agreeable electricity and how that would be, you know, routed. We, we don't see a lot of reference architectures uh, in our industry. We don't see a lot of that. We have a lot of um, fear mongering around, you know, problems and solutions that you can buy for, you know, money. Uh, but we see very little suggestions around core architecture configurations and setups. Um, when you can demonstrate at the low level, um, 
basic configurations that are solid and understanding of the technology and how it gets applied, it goes a long way. Um, and for those that, you know, are familiar with, you know, running PF sense boxes or want to go ahead and do, you know, chains and BSD and be able to limit access, you know, to and from destination rules and fine tuning their firewalls and filtering out noise. My point is, is when you go technically deep and can make those things happen, it sort of helps people understand that you don't need a lot of bells and whistles to get things off the ground. Maybe you want to add that for maturity of your program and you want to scale it and make it more, um, uh, you know, more, more useful if you're going to have a, a large operation of people to run it for you, but you have to understand the basics. And I think that we've done a really bad job and we continue to do a bad job around reference architectures. And that could be, here's a reference architecture for a, uh, um, uh, critical infrastructure that does water supply systems at a municipality level, and here's how they should be configuring their environments. Yes, everyone's going to be different, but having some reference architecture is important. I mean, even this week, the SEC came out and, you know, they're saying they're going to propose rules on cybersecurity risk management strategy and governance. Um, and that's all cool and all, but I think many people would agree here that compliance is not security. Compliance is like the bare minimum, right? Like, People are saying you should at least be doing this. And most mature organizations that take this stuff seriously have been doing it for years. It's the organizations that haven't funded it or haven't put the people there or the people don't have the chops to do the job that it becomes sort of litigious. And that's where the lawyers get involved. So remember what I said before, as I work with a law firm and as I watch that side of the business, I'm always sort of scratching my head saying, wow, that's, that's interesting. And, you know, the first thing they always say, lawyers in general, um, especially during litigation is, you know, can you demonstrate for us, you know, what commercially reasonable security practices your company follows and what have you done over the period of this time to demonstrate that functionality? Like that becomes me it becomes meaningful. And quite honestly, at the end of the day, that's the end result, right? Litigation and, and legal and you know, a jury of your peers that can't get out of jury duty, if they're gonna make the decision as to who pays millions of dollars in fines. There should be some reference architecture. There should be some meaningful approach to security. If you look at the UK, um, we have this thing called cyber essentials uh, in the UK, uh, and that really focuses around sort of like the the rules of the road, right? Like the basics to connect your business to the internet, and and there needs to go through that process. Here in the states, we don't have that, and um, you know that was again it gives you some perspective. Like with OWASP, just as a side note watching that organization and helping it grow to 35,000 people in 118 countries around the world, it gave me perspective. It gave me perspective going around the world and being a part of those communities and seeing what was different in cultures and people, and then coming back and saying, wow, you know, there's some really cool stuff going on in Brazil of how they're doing it for their model. And there's some cool stuff in the UK. And then you look around here in the US and we have this, this, uh, this ego that we're perhaps, you know, we think we're the best in the world, but look around. The states has a very interesting model in, in a capitalist market, right? The government is not involved in critical infrastructure in some cases. Why? Because they're private companies. So it becomes an interesting dynamic as to who's protecting who and how can you help them. All the guidance we see coming out of CISA right now, which shields up, is a fantastic effort. Jennifer Eastley and that team has done a great job. But it's almost like saying, you know, hey, here's a resource. Uh, you know, here's a website with a bunch of great stuff. Um, good luck. And it's difficult, I think, for organizations to digest that and really apply it in a meaningful way and, and in a speedy way. Thank you, Tom. Appreciate that. Um, in the interest of time, Dave Casper, to pass it over to you. 
Thanks. Yeah, sorry about that. I was having unlock <laughs> or unmute problems. Uh, David Cass, uh, any opinion I express is my own. <laughs> it doesn't represent that of my uh, current employer or past employer. Uh, I am the global CISO and US CTO for, for GSR. We are a crypto market maker. So I went from being a federal appointee regulator to nice and relaxed, looking like Tomas's picture on the beach there to back to being a CISO. So Tomas, <laughs> you look entirely too relaxed in that picture to be a CISO. Um, so really, you know, Tom, I definitely appreciate everything, you know, that, that you've done and, and all your contributions to industry. Um, yeah, what can we be doing, I guess, better as leaders to kind of bring people into the security fold from that perspective and show them that there are so many different career paths? I think, you know, that, you know, that that's always a challenge when somebody goes to school for their, you know, masters or in finance or things like that, they have a good understanding of what they can do. But, you know, security is such a diverse space. You know, how do we do a better job of showing people that, you know, there are all kinds of careers in this space? Yeah. Um, uh, again, opinion, right? I, I think that now everyone's in cybersecurity, right? Everyone's in security. And it's kind of like the statement that was made before that, um, you know, everyone's in sales. Right? meaning you have to communicate the message and be able to get it out the door for people to understand it and digest it. At the same time, you're responsible for your personal security and you should be. And there's folks that just won't be, right? There's other folks that perhaps that's not their main focus or they don't care, but let's look at it from a, a physical side, right? You lose your wallet in the parking lot. Do you have a photocopy of all the stuff that's in there? Credit cards, important ID information, et cetera. Do you do disaster recovery backup? right? The analogy, I think, still play a big part. You know, you'll leave your house and, you know, all your windows and doors locked, you know, all your ports and services secure, or you're running outdated access components that are easy to be circumvented. Um, you know, trying to teach people the basics is public service and public awareness, because that's going to raise the bar a little bit. And then organizations that are running a business, they're there to serve their shareholders or serve the purposes of their, their owners, if they're privately held, right? So, there's motivations that are going to be there. So I, I think that there's plenty of, of opportunity, but everyone that touches tech, they have to be part of this, the security experience because whether you're configuring a new IoT device for your home network or you're spending time developing software that's going to be used in you know pacemakers, um, there has to be a component of logging, controlling, understanding what the process is going to be, and even getting into, you know, what happens when things go sideways? What is the PCERT process, right? How do we identify a problem in a third-party component? How do we understand when we take that and, and do a hard fork uh, of the code because we have to, uh, or we have to have deal with, you know, existing licensing issues because we're incorporating somebody else's um, open source code into our product or our widget, which potentially could be, you know, a libel issue. Um, so all of that stuff is interesting. And you mentioned um, in your space, particularly in, in the crypto space, there's an opportunity. There's another opportunity there in that evolving market to have, you know, correlation, right? The FSI sec people that are involved in the banking space don't really embrace a lot of the folks in the crypto space uh, at this time. And I would like to see it actually become, you know, a recognized sort of group of people. And it is, I'm not saying it's not, but it's the conversation that it's separate and different where there's still some of the same needs and only because of relationships and long-term people working together, are there some, you know, are there a lot of, you know, individual groups of people that are collaborating and trying to, you know, drive things forward. Um, there's just a lot to be done. 
uh, and again, through universities, kind of gets the messaging out, good government standards, good reference architectures, and secure products are, are kind of important. And if you're an ISV producing software and you're not looking at, let's say, the safe code materials that are helping you build and, and, and drive standardized software models, um, you could be held what? You could be held liable. So it depends on what end of the spectrum you're on. Are you building product, building code, or are you consuming it? And there's different different pieces for each one of those 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 parties. Oh, thanks. You know, I was having unmute issues there. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm just trying to think. So, you know, I guess part of you know, as you mentioned, I guess staying in this career is kind of staying you know, at the, you know, in front of all the educational background and everything else. So how do you kind of foster that continuous learning and, you know, life balance aspect of it? And I'll hand it over to Jennifer after this. So, so personally, I'm, I'm, I'm a little obsessive compulsive as it pertains to some of the technology spaces. And I constantly sort of time manage and put time on the calendar to, you know, block an hour out and go research that thing. And I typically do it over personally, I typically do it over 30 sessions. So depending on what it is that I want to learn about, like I might break out 30 sessions and put 30 sessions on my calendar over a period of three months. And every quarter, if there's something that's on my topic list that I want to sort of focus on, you know, start off with a cursory review, a little bit of a research and treat it just the same way. So whether I'm bug hunting on a particular product or I'm trying to learn a new thing, or I'm very interested in a particular situation, you know, around the world in the news, maybe that's where you, you know, have to go back to discipline of research and how you come up with results and how you produce papers and how you go down that from even again, an academic point of view of, you know, what are you trying to learn? Um, and it's a ongoing process, I think. And if, if we all agree to that piece that we like to be a life learner, you know, what's your next topic? What's, you know, what's on your list of things to do? And are you really making progress there? Because, you know, the definition of insanity is what? Doing the same thing over and over again and thinking you're going to have a different result. So if we're trying to drive ourselves to be better, the industry to be better, um, we want to be able to pave the way, um, document the process. Uh, and like I always tell people, if you get hit by a bus tomorrow, somebody should be able to pick up the ball and keep going. If you're selfish and don't want to write things down and don't want to document things, you're doing the business a disservice. And quite honestly, you're not doing anything for your legacy. Uh, I know, at least from the OWASP community and Safe Code and some of the other groups I participated in, I like seeing some of the material that was re that you know that was produced during those errors or those those times, and watching people go, "Oh yeah, I read the OWASP testing guide. You contributed to that, yeah." You know, and and it becomes, "Wow, that was a really important document for me to learn how to hack web applications." You'd be like, "Yeah, that was a that was a good a good amount of my time. I appreciate that you loved it and you, you read it." So. People that are participating in these things, I think, are really important. So whether you're learning or giving back, you just have to find the time. Uh, and that's that's the most valuable asset we really have. Awesome. Thank you. And, and uh, I guess, Jennifer, over, over to you. Hey, thank you, Tom. I think I know more about you from what Tom Ryan tells me than, uh, than you actually. This is the most I've ever heard you speak, I think, which is awesome. Love hearing your backstory. Um, thanks for having me up. So something that caught my um, ear was uh, when you were talking about um, pulling things apart and playing with toys and going in certain directions and not toys, playing with electronics. And then um, you said that then you could go in one direction, but you went into the Marines. 
um, wanted to drill into that a little bit more was whether I misheard that or whether that is what I heard that that kind of was a direction you took to, to stay on a, a better path. Is that what you were implying? Uh, a little bit of both. I, I, you know, back in those yeah. days, I mean, we're talking the uh, early eighties. Um, it, it was probably good that I, um, you know, got on a bus and, and, and left Long Island and, uh, um, went into a different, um, a different career. Uh, I probably wasn't in a good trajectory of, uh, you know, not ending up behind bars. So the, the goal there of course was, you know, you wanted to realize early on in your career and, and find mentors that could help you do things that would be more positive. Uh, and again, it wasn't any notorious, but it was, you know, it's definitely in the cyber realm of, you know, using technology in a way it really wasn't supposed to be made and, 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 do, and just being, you know, a little nefarious kid at the point. Uh, my point that I made was that you, you make choices and you can stay on those tracks and you can stay on, um, those, those trains and, and you get hit by the bus, or you can just simply say it's about ethics, right? Like I always come back to the conversation and say that the difference between the good guy and the bad guy on the internet isn't so much the technical skill because there's lots of great talent on both sides of the fence, but the fence is called ethics, right? So what you will do and what I will do may be very different in context because some people may, you know, take a dollar, uh, for, uh, you know, for doing a, doing something that may be considered unethical and others will, you know, stand with integrity and say, no, I'm not willing to accept that. Or that's, that's not okay. Um, and you know, I'm going to put my foot down and I'm going to go ahead and not make that happen. So I think that becomes super important is for people to have, the ethics and integrity to do the right thing when nobody's looking. Yeah. And I would actually, um, and the reason it was curious to me, um, I agree. And also though, when we're younger, we don't even, um, realize that the ethical implications necessarily, I mean, we might know something's not exactly right, but we don't understand the bigger picture of it and the directions it can send you on. And, um, something that was, uh, just to share a little bit was in my life that was valuable was, um, I was a sea scout in high school. And so if I was not a sea scout in high school, that would have, um, that's what saved me from going in, um, kind of a direction that would have been great. So I just, I, I appreciate that. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And, and, and to, to build on that, even those areas, like, again, under the crest uh, flag, right, we did a lot of work with, uh, you know, the crime and prevention of youth and spent a lot of time on looking at, you know, diversity in those areas and produced position papers and produced, you know, research reports and things that can be used, again, by universities or corporations to apply them to their diversity programs and, and, and even schools on, you know, how to, you know, transform troubled youth, right? Because we would like to have more people on the on the positive side of making the world a better place perhaps than those that want to light a fire to it right so we gotta balance it and it's a it's a giant um, geopolitical issue with lots of logistics uh, and I think if we can all do our best to get along uh, you know we may have different views and political components but at the end of the day uh, you know, I would hope that people want to see uh, others you know not not suffer uh, in, in the world they live in yeah, and to your point, people don't get a lot of guidance. I mean, here's the thing, like, you you know, are your teachers providing it to your parents? You know, what's your environment? You can't necessarily blame the kids for being unethical. And then also, honestly, I um, it would be interesting to hear you talk about this, but in the modern world's um, education structure, I think our education is highly outdated and kids are bored as shit. So um, it's, they're, they're doing, I mean, you know, they're getting into stuff and it's not, it's just they can because they're smart and they need a challenge. And unfortunately, that challenge might send them in a direction that's not great right now. And so to have these opportunities that can um, kind of harness that in ways that are good both for society, but for them too, that challenge them and teach them and give them that sense of um, accomplishment and achievement, et cetera. I don't know if you're seeing that in the kids you're mentoring um, or want to speak to that at all. 
it's, it's again with, with you know I, I just think that i agree with you i think that we need to do better uh and there's kids of all different calibers and, and people with different intellects and we have to sometimes teach at a lowest denominator but more importantly we have to you know try to give people things that are interesting and it's all about passion uh many people that i've ever hired on different teams i've worked on and different organizations i've been a part of it's you know i can i can quickly pick out passion i think pretty quickly whether it be running a, a security conference and who can participate or you know people that want to do different things it's it's really about you know finding people that have energy and passion and 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 have a smile on their face if they walk around with a, a black cloud over their head quite frankly it becomes an asset and a liability uh you want to associate with assets and you want to you know put liabilities in arm's length right because they either have to you know see the good in what they're working on or they're going to bring everybody down Yep, thank you. It's awesome. Assets over liabilities, like my good friends at Earn Your Leisure would say. Uh, <laughs> um, and th Jennifer, thanks for popping up on stage and asking your question. Always, uh, always grateful to ha have you participate and add to the to the conversation. Ange, over to you. Hey, thanks, uh, Katie. Thanks for the invite up. I like how you guys know that if I'm in the room, I've probably got a question. Um, Tom, it was great to hear you on the last room, uh, and then this room was been, has been incredible so far. Um, the why behind this question, uh, I've had the honor to teach several people that are coming into the industry how to um, collect and present forensic findings to lawyers. And there's always a um, this hurdle that we have to kind of move across together. Uh, where there's a lot of anxiety and, and kind of some intimidation around speaking with lawyers. And so um, I was hoping for anyone that's, especially anyone that's in the room that's new into cyber or um, or has that kind of fear, can you talk a little bit about what your favorite thing about working with lawyers is? Like what's that it factor that just makes you excited to work alongside lawyers? Yeah, no, um, I, I will. Um, and I never thought I would say this, actually, because, you know, it's always the, the lawyer jokes, I think, that were funny when I first started to meet lots of cool lawyers. Uh, but the fun part, I think, in some of the projects and cases I've been a part of has been, you know, if you want to fight for peace, work for justice, right? So helping lawyers do the lawyer job of defending people and trying to, you know, find the right as well as to navigate to the law is very much cyber related, meaning you manage the policy. If you don't have a policy, you certainly don't have a procedure. Uh, and then as it pertains to you know, incident response or forensic work, we all should know, you know some of the basic principles like you know, following Octum Razor and looking at approaches to data. Um, you let the data tell the story. You don't interpret the data. You don't go ahead and report on what you think happened. You report on what you find and what's factual. And then a good legal professional will look at the factual information and make his own opinion based on that and use it in a way that he'll use it or she'll use it for the case to defend who? The client that that person's been retained to client without bias. So forensics or doing work with lawyers, I think is very important because they're peers in the conversation where I'm providing you with the evidence to support the the matter and the evidence may bury the client or the evidence may exonerate him. Um, but that's not for me to interpret, right? I'm here to provide you the data. And I think once people have an understanding as to what lane they swim in, it becomes really, really easy. So I've seen a lot of great, you know, lawyers uh, look for pieces of information or ask about a particular thing. And 
my response is, well, here's what I found, and this is the information that's there. So we have to look at what is within scope. Uh, and if you're on the prosecution side, you know, what's within the warrant or the subpoena uh, that, you know, is actually being discovered. So it's interesting, but I, I found it um, technically challenging working with lawyers in particular, because a lot of these guys are, or, and girls are, are smart cookies, and that, that's, that's fun. Um, and they, many of them don't know how to use technology at all, which makes it even more fun because they're interpreting, um, you know, information I'm giving them very factual, and then they're interpreting the law around that data. I think of like the CFAA, Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. It's, it was written so long ago um, that, you know, there's many ways to, um, to manipulate that particular issue uh, from a technology perspective. I just want to jump back up here really quickly being a lawyer, Tom, you're giving them like the benefit of the doubt there in a big way. I think lawyers will absolutely manipulate uh, things and find data to support it. Um, and especially prosecutors, but um, yeah, computer fraud and abuse act is what from the eighties and we're still using the Lincoln law from the civil war in a lot of federal contracts. But um, that was mm-hmm. a, nice, a nice review of lawyers. A lot of people are not that objective or um, ethical. <laughs> just saying. Thanks. Yeah, well, I, I think that comes down to again, um, you know, it's uh, people that you work with, uh, and uh, I've seen, you know, some righteous fights uh, for various technical issues and claims, including human life, um, and and seeing those type of projects and the people that you know put the effort behind them, you know, the righteous, you know, lawyers. I, Again, it's a different industry, right? But I always like people with passion, and, and the idea is, I, I think I've found uh, many colleagues that that do things with passion which is what i appreciate yeah there's lots of good there's lots of good lawyers too uh and i know this was your question so i'm going to dice it back to you but to just remember that um justice is not always done it tends to be what evidence is in front of them and whoever's the better lawyer can get that better evidence um i'm a technology not a litigator in those areas but um great great descriptor tom i knew you were gonna hop back up jennifer i was so ready for it (laughs) um Tom, I really appreciate it. I same as you, sir. I see it as a challenge, and it's always really exciting to um, to get to work with new law firms and just and just figure out the the best way to speak to a different caliber of of forensics. So, thank you. I appreciate that so much. Thanks for letting me ask my question. Yeah, thanks, Sanj. Thanks for popping up on stage, uh, Cyber Doctor. Hey, Tomas and everyone. Good evening, Tom. Great, great discussion that we had here uh, on Clubhouse this evening. You brought up a good topic that I actually talked about and spoke about at a conference last week is in the cybersecurity industry in that comparing it to the medical industry where, you know, when you look at nurses, you look at doctors, there's they're not running around to uh, is it CompTIA? you know, this century or is it sans now, right? And so, uh, you know, this is something that a lot of people discuss and, you know, you hear different things thrown around about gatekeeping, but just curious your thoughts about that that bar, right? Um, if you will, as it relates to cybersecurity, yeah, you can go to whatever institution or be self-taught. I think all those things are important, but we are definitely seeing an issue uh across the board in the industry and i'm just curious on if you think maybe not in our lifetime but maybe in the future that there could be room for that equivalent like the medical industry has 
is the cyber doctor. I'm done speaking. Yeah, no, great question. Um, so recent experiences, um, I think that are unfolding and a quick Google for those that are in the defense industrial base, um, look for things called, you know, CMMC, uh, and the CMMC is sort of coming from a DOD effort because why, um, you know, NIST 100, you know, 800-171 was a self-attestation that during federal procurement that you're saying that you're doing the minimum standards to defend the organization's supply chain and the security of the data and the, the controls are in place. And you basically sign a document and say, yeah, I'm, of course I'm doing it. Why wouldn't I do it? Of course I'm doing it. I want that gazillion dollar contract from the DOD. But nobody ever like enforced it or looked at it, right? And then we start having different supply chain problems and we literally have all different types of stories, but you can surmise that yes, people do die because of supply chain problems. And some of these root causes have been traced back to, you know, things that like, I don't know, third party organizations that build products or parts, uh, physical parts in some cases, you know, I've had the, the documents modified and have had the specs modified, which caused, you know, a, a failed part in a helicopter, which killed 13 servicemen, like all sorts of crazy things that if you dive it deep into it, you start going, hmm, there's something to this supply chain problem, right? Um, so again, back to CMMC, this effort is really focused around the 600,000 organizations that are in the defense industrial base that the CMMC effort wants to help ensure that those organizations have gone through appropriate review and accreditation that they can be providers and suppliers. So will anyone ever get it right? Probably not. But to your point, if we're not even looking, if we're not even testing, if we're not even doing a spot audit or a spot review to confirm certain controls are in place, then how can we ever really quantify that we're um, handling the materials in a way that is, uh, uh, handling materials in a way that's appropriate? And again, you said different levels, and I, and I agree with you. When we talk about you know, national critical infrastructure. We talk about the 16 different areas of focus. Um, I'm not talking about Joe's hamburger joint at the end of the block who takes credit cards. Yes, PCI is important. And yes, the banks are insured and the banks write off some of those losses and Visa MasterCard doesn't want their brand tarnished by Mary getting her credit card compromised. But that's different, right? It's a different space. Uh, if you're looking at more of a supply chain of disrupting a water system or, you know, the famous power grid disruption everyone talks about, there's lots of these areas. But if you live in a state that even has a publicly um, controlled uh, effort, let's say around power, that is a nuclear regulatory uh, governance area, um, wouldn't you want to have the appropriate testing and controls in place? Wouldn't you want the people doing those assessments to have qualifications that they've done it before? And that it's not a, a you know, a push button computer security vulnerability scan that is being produced as here, here, you're nice and secure. I think you would having, you know, the people on, the, on this call that are technical because you want to try to assure and give some credibility to what you're saying. So the point is, yes, we can have people read instructions. Yes, they can be self-taught. Yes, they can graduate up and get, you know, hours, but that's where, it goes back to what I do on, you know, with, with Crest, if you can demonstrate that you've had, you know, 1800 hours of doing penetration testing and red team work and security operations center work, you know, you have a, a level that can be met with verification, then you can be awarded an accreditation and you can go ahead and use these different levels to determine where you are in the stack. And if you're dealing with, you know, airplanes in the sky or, or satellites or nautical systems or whatever it may be, if they're deemed, you know, cr national critical infrastructure, um, there are some assurances that people want 
to make sure that these systems are there? Should you also have the random bug bounty or the random guy who finds a problem and be able to responsibly disclose it? Absolutely, in my opinion. Um, but that doesn't take away from having the accredited doctor do doctor stuff or the accredited person doing high-risk security work. Um, but let's go back to what it's all about, right? In many cases, it's the code. In many cases, it's a human that does something in a certain way and in the ID they're working in doesn't necessarily pop and tell them, hey, you didn't go ahead and, you know, you didn't go ahead and escape these characters correctly. Hence, this could be a, a vulnerability in the future when somebody wants to go ahead and attack it and do, you know, SQL injection, which has been around for how many years now? About 20, right? So the idea is some of these problems repeat themselves and we have to go back to the core piece. If we're talking about software, software is buggy by definition. And, you know, some of these things now run very critical systems. So I think there's an opportunity to up our game and demonstrate what a good supply chain looks like and be a part of that. And there's many organizations that contribute to that, not just one. Thanks. Awesome stuff. Awesome stuff. If anybody has a, a question, uh, feel free to raise your hand. We will bring you up on stage and you can ask you a question of Tom. We're, we're going to go for another uh, 20 minutes or so. So if there's anything that's burning uh, in your mind and you want to know, feel free. Jump up and let us know. Uh, Tom, I'm going to pivot a little bit. Uh, oh, Katie, you want to add something? Oh, no, go ahead. Go ahead, Katie. No, no, go ahead, go ahead. Well, I was going to do the same. You were going to pivot a little bit. Um, I was going to say, um, you just said a lot of things that would keep me up at night, Tom. Um, you really, you stretch yourself. Um, I wouldn't say thin. It sounds like you're, you're balancing everything really well. But I guess that's my question is, how do you um, talk about all the things that you talk about, know all the things that you know, and also be able to sleep at night. What are your outlets? I think a lot of people in our industry right now are struggling with how do we, um, you know, deal with all of these really complex and um, uh, sometimes very mission critical um, obstacles every day, and then also find an outlet in our life, um, you know, whether that's meditating or whatever. And if you'd be open to share um, kind of what the other part of your life looks like, I think that it's important for all of us to know that someone like you is able, how you're, how are you able to balance all of these things and still sleep at night? Yeah. Wow. Um, I'm actually super happy that that, that question was asked because um, in the information security industry, um, you know, unfortunately some of us find out that colleagues, friends, associates, we've met at conferences, you know, kill themselves. Uh, and, you know, stress and the burden and not understanding, you know, how to socially let that communicate and, and have the ability to talk with peers and super important, right? We've lost a number of people in the last three years that have been sort of public um, in the security space that for, unfortunately, based on personality defects, uh, have decided it would be better for them to um kill themselves, quite honestly, than to uh, to deal with it a different way. But to your point, I think that the mental health balance is important to, you know, work real hard. I, I, I'm a type of person that goes passionate for 15 hours a day, but then when I shut it off, I, I get to a point that I need to go take a two-day break and go do something else. And that may be, you know, off-roading, or that may be, you know, taking a fishing trip, or that may be going to the gun range, or that may be whatever it is that I'm doing with my kids and, and my family, and it, you, know, you need to break away. So I, I, I personally have found a good balance with the people around me that understand that when Tom's doing his thing, which was what Tom does, 
I'm going to kind of, you know, work my own hours and when I'm done, I'm done. Um, and sometimes that's not conducive, right? It's not a nine to five type job. It's not a, hey, let's go do this for six hours and then go take a lunch break for an hour. Yeah, it's just not the way I operate. Uh, I, I'm pretty much, you know, full on. And then when I have the opportunity to, to break out, I will. Um, and that doesn't work for a lot of people. Um, so, you know, that's, that's there. But again, if you find a team of people that you have different strengths and you can play off each other, if you're part of a team, um, then you can kind of have that go around. And many of us that are done the incident response type work, you know, know that, those type of projects are unfortunately 24 seven till they're done. So you have that mentality. Then you have the bug bounty and the QA and the pen test mentality, which is similar, right? Which is, we're going to get this thing. We're going to get through this problem and we're going to, you know, get to the, the treasure chest. Um, but when those projects are over, sometimes you gotta take a break. And those are those, those, those type of projects. If you're just doing operational stuff all day long and you have a very comfortable business and you have a ton of people and you have a ton of money and that's, that's, that's rare, right? There's not a lot of tech people that have the resources and the people and the the things that they need to help run their practice. Everybody's short staffed. Everybody doesn't have all the bells and whistles that they would like to have, nor they have the time in the day. So again, I, I go back to the stress and going back to the mental health piece um, and those are very important areas to, to make sure we spend time in and check in with our friends and give them a call and, you know, do the face-to-face as possible, or even the zoom meetings these days, but, you know, do that physical, Hey, how you doing? You know, just checking in and making sure that you know, people have, uh, have lifelines. Oh yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. I appreciate you, um, sharing that. And yeah, it can be just that easy to, is, uh, to reach out to somebody and just say, Hey, are you Okay. <laughs> So I, yeah. I appreciate that, Tom. Yeah, thank you for sharing. Um, Tomas? Thanks, Kay. And uh, mental health is a real issue. It definitely is a real issue. Um, Stephen, you had another question you wanted to ask. Uh, you want to ask it now? Yeah, uh, I, I think we were kind of touching on it with, with the SEC proposal for, um, you know, security and cyber being part of the board. I, I think the question for Tom would have been, what, what do you think took so long, right? Because when we talk about what Sarbanes Oxley was supposed to do, I, I think, you know, I look back at it and, and laugh a little bit because what was it like 20 years ago where the thought was like, hey, maybe we should have people who are financially literate actually taking a look at what numbers we're putting out there, you know, to the street. And cybersecurity has been such a part of that overall risk formula for a while now. What do you think took this long to really get this as as even an idea that's circulating around the SEC? So I I think SOX was a little bit different, really more tied to Enron at the point, right? When that sort of was the driving conversation around financial misrepresentation and, and, and sort of driving that to the bottom line, which caused, you know, a bunch of cascading effects. I do feel that, you know, cyber these days is a hot topic, although all of us that have been talking have been in the space for quite some time, it's mainstream. It's kind of like a news cycle, uh, in my opinion, where that, you know, data breaches these days are happening all the time. The third largest law firm in New Jersey just fell victim to that problem. And, you know, they got hit really hard and we're going to see how that flows out and it'll become sort of case law. And we're going to see what happens to a large law firm uh, that has had some problems. Uh, But at the end of the day, and it wasn't ours, of course, uh, but at the end of the day, you start looking at 
the um, the impact and ramifications, but when organizations have a data breach, right, and now there's federal law that's going to go into place that's, you know, reporting within a certain amount of time and every state has unification about what the approach should, should look like, but the states are happy to take the inbound phone call and report the data and be able to determine, oh, what fine may be leveled here if it goes, you know, to a litigation. But what resources and assistance are they actually able to provide to the organizations? So that's kind of the where the gap is, right? Again, reference architecture, um, assistance. This has done a good job over the last year and a half, sort of changing some of its efforts to allow um, businesses to ask for help as well as to get best practices and some guidance. But who's applying those? Um, so things as things change, uh, especially the SEC piece, going back to what you asked about, um, I also see that to be uh, a focal point around um, mitigating loss. Think about DFS 500 here in New York City, right? That space in particular is organizations $10 million and over doing financial transactions that have to report into the state as well as have a DPO and have people that are responsible for those act those actions on behalf of the company. I don't think there's anything wrong with somebody saying who at this company is responsible for cybersecurity and that person should be reporting to the CEO. That person should be the right-hand man of the CEO that is saying, hey, here's your risk. But being able to articulate that, being able to have the, the business realize that you're giving good guidance and having it be based on what? Having it be based on formal education? Have it be based on a framework? Have it be based on a metric? Have it be based on some product that you're pushing buttons in and spits out a report? Providing the data is what the, the board is fiduciary responsible for, right? They have to have the data to make the decision. So I think that that's the SEC in this latest attempt is to say who's in your organization that is that person and what that person says, especially in writing, if he puts something in writing about a risk, that it's up to the organization to digest it and have a response to it. Hence goes on to risk registrar and the log of those communications. So it gets tricky. It, it really does. Um, but again, it's still a people problem, right? It has to be good communication and solid relationships to to make the make things move. Appreciate the insights, Tom. Thank you. I think it's going to be very interesting, Tom. I, I think uh, a lot of CISOs uh, um, who are in different stages of their career, maybe some closer to the uh, to the latter part of their careers, will will see this as a as breathing a little bit new life into into what they might want to do and add value back back to companies and uh, by way of, of of board level type roles, uh, I also think CISOs need to be cautious and ensure that there's you know appropriate safeguards for for them. Uh, things like DNO insurance is going to be uh, mm -hmm. uh, very key and critical uh, because now you're taking on a lot of personal liability right by being on a board. So. I think it's an interesting time. I think I think it's a step in a in in a direction that is almost necessary uh, because of everything that's happening. Uh, companies being breached, you know, almost every just by every single day. Um, yeah. So look, I, I I see it as a as an opportunity uh, for us to add value back back to the community and and to uh, and to find a, a new way for us to to continue to to carry on the, the practicing the, the profession. So should be a, should be a fun, should be a fun few uh, months or years, if you will, as to how this progresses and, and be interesting to watch. Um, 
All right. Uh, oh, I do see uh, Kevin. Thanks for pop. Oh, Cyber Doctor, do you come up on stage again? Do you have another question, or were you there and we got you? Not yeah, you guys already got me. All right, sounds good. Kevin, thanks for uh, popping up on stage. Uh, anything you want to ask, Tom? Sure. Uh, I'd like to introduce myself first. My name is Kevin Martin. I'm a First Nations, Yonkton uh, Yankton Sioux from the Fort Peck Reservation in Montana, and I live on the Navajo Reservation right now. I have a, a, a bit of an experience and a question at the end, so let me describe my bit of experience. Uh, not having a business background or, or <clears throat> having um, formal training. Uh, I gathered together a team. We established a 501c3 with the sole purpose of establishing um, sustainable infrastructure on reservations using a nearly zero tax base and uh, single bid uh, contracting with the U.S. government. We were able to assemble about 14 different companies with wonderful products. Um, it was going pretty good. Things were going very well until somebody threw serious money at us, over <laughs> 50 million to start. And that's where the problems began. Um, I, I learned some valuable lessons in as far as organization and structure the kind of team members that you want on your team, et cetera. I haven't given up on that dream, and certainly those companies are still waiting there, ready to go ahead and present to um, the individual reservations, creating micro-industries in reservations, and then eventually linking out past the reservation boundaries. For example, you know, um, electric car stations and electric car manufacturing on reservations, et cetera. So, my valuable lesson, and I guess the question at the end of the, at the end of it was, um, it was, and and Tom, you had mentioned that some of your team members' um, mental stability uh, suffered, and I certainly saw that. Um, of my core team, five of us that began, two and a half. Uh, went through divorces, Real, you know, we're pumping out 21 hours a day trying to get this thing rolling. People didn't understand us. They didn't understand their purpose, et cetera. And uh, I haven't given up on that dream. And I'm always thinking, you're, you know, I would like your reflection on this current uh, Bitcoin um, boom that might be going out. And I'm looking at it as whoever is basically um, farming, or actually establishing a Bitcoin service system eventually is going to have to have a pretty large space for the amount of power that it's drawing. And I'm looking at that as the nexus of the, the next step in centralizing Bitcoin if it's going to be a future. Um, I would really love to hear your reflection on, uh, you know, your take on um, if that's an endeavor worth really pursuing and, um, if, if it's clever enough, if uh, reservations could service, because to me, if you're going to have that amount, let's just say you're going to be drawing power from solar or wind or wherever, you're going to consume a lot of large amount of land if you're not already locked into rivers. And in this region down here, the river's drying up. You know, um, that's just the way it is. So we have to have sustainable systems in order to, in order to um, suffice for the farm. So, what would your take be on a potential future for creating such a system um, 
on on a reservation if it's possible yeah um appreciate the question um there's a lot to unpack there um i i think that there's a couple things you mentioned i'd like to dive a little deeper into and and maybe the first one i would ask is um why you went with a 501c3 and not a 501c6 was there a, a reason for that a, a, a conscious reason based on what you've said well you know we were offered b core we were offered a couple platforms in b core and we were like okay that would probably be the direction to go and uh you know being new to this this entire structure i i just basically i'm a counselor right i had nothing in us in the way of business at all so you know i can't really fully answer that question because i really don't know the difference in in uh, in any real meaningful way okay that, that, that's fair um so uh in summary i i, I that's the other thing, like with OWASP that you heard about, which is a 501c3, and then SafeCode, and then uh, another nonprofit, and Crest in the United States, another nonprofit. So having the um, the understanding of how some of those things work uh, is really important. Uh, but in summary, let's just say the 501c3 is more like a, a church, a synagogue, you know, serving the greater good, uh, and a 501c6 is more of a business league where it might bring multiple businesses together for the same purpose to, you know, drive mission, et cetera. But um, in, in what you're saying though, is gets you know, deep very quickly. Uh, the, the crypto space and mining and power and that component, I'm not your guy. Uh, but certainly that's where, you know, hyper-connecting to the right people, and some of them are in the room, I just noticed, um, would be a great way to uh, make some friends. Uh, but I think there's a lot of opportunity there. Uh, I think there's a lot of opportunity for businesses to look at that um, uh, currency model that's been involving right since 2008, 2009, um, and it's not going away anytime soon. Um, but I don't know that I'd be the best person to speak to the the technical components of the uh, the power uh, and uh, capitalizing on that in in, in your region. Uh, but I would say. Uh, that sounds like one component of your overall comp piece. I would be interested though, you said you got $50 million in funding. Was that a grant into you guys to do your admission or was that raised in a different way? Um, we had a private investor. We met with him. Um, I'll, I can't disclose, but basically a billionaire. Um, that was his minimum, invest, his minimum investment. And I, you know, the beautiful part of it is that <clears throat> when we were all got when we all got together for our first initial meeting um what was said was we have gathered here because we are spiritual people mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that that was the leading thing that the glue that held us all together was even though we were different denominations uh, and we're different uh, parties uh, political parties that was a very strong start and i i, I think that that was the right way to start personally well, I, I definitely think that regardless of, you know, the, 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 the effort and what it sounds like in your voice, you, there's, there's something there that's about mission and purpose and, and helping. Um, those are always welcome. And I'd love to take that offline and learn more about what you're doing and see how, um, you know, I, I might be able to connect you to some people that could help you uh, or uh, contribute in that way. Again, that's one of those areas I mentioned before. That's something I look at and go, oh, well, let's look at, you know, 30 sessions on figuring out what that's doing and, and learn, 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 then execute because it becomes, you know, another passion, right? Which is trying to help change the world, uh, especially in your region or uh, uh, to, help, to help those that need, need that assistance.
Well, it'd be much appreciated. And if I were to do something again, you know, we had a scoping meeting with Tom Chi, who was Google's lead tech, and he invented Google Glass, et cetera. And the caliber of people that I would like to bring to the second scoping meeting is uh, would be have to have to be very carefully thought out. And I would I appreciate the offer, and I certainly will be message you. And uh, thank you very much for your insight. Yeah, cool. Thanks. Thanks for the question. Um, so, so adding back to um, the cyber piece, I think that might also invoke other questions. I think is the, the the convergence. I think we haven't really touched that yet. The convergence of physical security and electronic security, right? I think many of us would agree that's happened, right? And and now we've crossed over where that you know if I'm gonna do things in Manhattan, like just talk to, think about the recent shooting. Um, was anyone surprised when the public news report was that the camera systems were not working in the subways? So they had a more difficult time to identify the assailant. Was anyone surprised that, you know, technology wasn't working that could have aided and abetted or assisted uh, with identification uh, quicker? Um, I was. Uh, if you're going to, you know, use technology as a red teamer, uh, as a assailant with a guy with no ethics, perhaps you're going to attack that thing. And I don't mean that situation in Europe, but I mean the next thing. You're, you're going to blind the organization first, right? You're going to take out their ability to see. You're going to take out their ability to have remote guards or remote monitoring. You're going to have a blended threat. You're going to have physical people, you know, storm the storm the building, if you will, or access the location. So. What I draw on is, again, experiences of doing red team work and doing critical infrastructure testing. Uh, and when you put those scenarios and tabletop exercises together for your businesses, um, those are the things that I think now are very interesting, right? Active shooter conversations, even though that's far and few, uh, it should still be very much in, in your conversation, in my opinion, because many of your uh staff members, uh, you know, think about this stuff and they wonder, you know, how can they be safe and what would happen, God forbid, somebody walked into their building with, uh, you know, with a chip on their shoulder and, and a gun in their pocket. Does that make sense? So we got to look at these things in, in context. So, you know, having a policy is nice, having a procedure is great, going through testing and training exercises is, is good because most of us are going to fight the way we train. And if we train the way we're going to fight, um, then we're going to be more resilient. I, I, I'm not going to disagree with that. Um, I, I completely agree with you, Tom. Um, man, sorry. The, the day is getting to me. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> it's, a, it's been a, a bit of a long day. But look, um, I've had a really good conversation or really I heard, I've heard a really good conversation. And I've, I, I appreciate you sort of taking the time out of your data to answer our questions and, and even entertain this this discussion that we've been having for the past hour and a half. Um, I'll open up to, to the moderators. Any any other questions? Uh, if not, I'll, I'll ask Tom uh, my typical final question. I'm just going to say a final thought, if I could, real quick. Just, Tom, thank you so much for being here tonight. And um, it does go by really fast uh, for me when uh, there's a person on the, the, the stage that answers questions and, and goes in directions that I would never have expected and um, really appreciate your transparency tonight and spending so much time with us. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for the invite. Right, if, if not, all right. So Tom, I usually like asking this this question um, and, and it's probably gonna 
pivot a little bit, but if you had one piece of advice for the younger Tom, what would it be and why? Hmm. <laughs> um, I think at this point, don't do anything different. Um, I think stay committed to the effort. Um, surround yourself with people that run towards bullets because those are the people you want to be by your side. Um, and do your best to, um, do the right thing when no one's looking. I think those are some really important characteristics that I hope to instill on my kids to make sure that they see that every day and they, you know, pick up, um, you know, where dad leaves off in some cases. It's good advice. Solid, solid advice. Still, nobody wants to say buy Google. I don't know why that. I don't know. I would <laughs> tell my younger self buy some Google stock. Um, but listen, it is it is uh, close to the well. It is nine thirty three p.m. Eastern time, and uh, I I did say we would sort of try to conclude at about nine thirty. Uh, so I want to keep keep to time. And I also want to just very, very quickly plug uh, next week, next week, uh, come back next week. We do this every Wednesday between uh, 8 p.m. and 9.30 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, next week, we've got Ryan Rosado joining us in the hot seat. So come back next week. Um, but this evening has been fantastic. Uh, it's been a really good conversation. If you join us late, you can hear the playback in about maybe 10 minutes or so when it, when it becomes available and I guarantee you don't want to uh, you don't want to miss hearing the playback because it's been a really great conversation uh, there's so much in this in this evening's conversation to unpack and we could probably talk for another few hours uh, but again I want to be very respectful of everybody's time uh, because we do take up a lot of your time during the week so moderators any final words before I leave it to Tom to bring us home Man, my mods are quiet this evening. <laughs> I'd say, Tom, thanks so much for spending the evening with us. What you've done is inspiring, both in the past and uh, shoulders in which we get to stand upon, as well as inspiring for us to keep at the good work that you've been doing. So, again, thanks for your time this evening, and thanks for all you've done for all of us. Well, uh, thank you very much. And uh, I guess from a clubhouse side, you know, if we if we land the plane, I would say that uh, – um, it's, it's really a matter of doing more things like this and, and collaboration and, and the face-to-face -face stuff is important. Um, you know, people are usually very accessible or could be very accessible sometimes on purpose. Um, I fall into that camp of being on purpose. So if there's anything I can do to, to help or, uh, any organization that, um, you know, is looking for input, especially nonprofits or organizations that have a, a rightful mission, you know, I'm here to help. And that's, uh, all I can ask. Awesome. 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 Uh, all right, Tom, if, if you want to say anything else, I'll leave you with the final, final word. Um, but it's been a pleasure, my friend. I really appreciate you. I really appreciate everything you've done uh, for not only uh, indirectly for me and my career, by being involved in leading OWAS uh, and, and everything that I've been able to take advantage of uh, learning from you and learning from people that you've put in front of me by way of different organizations that you've been a part of. So I, I sincerely appreciate that. And I appreciate you for, for, uh, for giving so much of your time. Uh, so I'll leave you with the final word and you can bring us home. 
Yeah, um, we're good. Again, thank you. Um, again, things like RSA, Black Hat, DEF CON, those are uh, uh, our, our stomping grounds. Look forward to catching up with people for uh, a face-to-face -face or uh, uh, a, a quick pint. Uh, but at the end of the day, um, collaboration is, is really where it needs to stay at and people need to be approachable. Sounds good. Thank you, everybody. Have a good rest of your week. Uh, we'll see you back next Wednesday, 8 p.m. Eastern time. Don't be late. Cheers. Bye, everybody. Thanks. Bye, everybody.